The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Hope you got a handout. We're looking at the doctrine of the purity and unity of the church. And as we come to um, this, this subject, these are two um, attributes or aspects or descriptors of the church which are incredibly precious, um, that churches would be pure and that churches would be united. These are two things that we're looking at uh, tonight. And uh, though it's not a major focus of Grudem's chapter, I, it occurs to me just how providential it is that we're studying this because I think Romans 14 is given uh, specifically to address these two issues, that the church would be both pure and also united. There's always a, a threat that the church will, will veer off into worldliness and into sinfulness. And so there's a need constantly to be vigilant that the church would be pure. Um, there's also um, a threat that a you know, commitment to purity could act, uh, actually end up fracturing the church or fragmenting the church as, as uh, one group consider, it considers itself purer or holier than another and they can't fellowship with them because they haven't reached the level of maturity that they're at and they, they, they just can't continue doing local church with them and so the church has the possibility to crumble like, uh, like dried pottery um, and, and clearly Paul doesn't want that happening and so there's this, that yearning that the strong bear with the failings of the weak and to stay together um, so that they can grow up together. You can see how it would not benefit either one uh, for the fragmenting to uh, occur. The, the stronger, more mature ones who have a good solid grasp of doctrine, uh, they need weaker brothers and sisters in Christ in their own sanctification. They need the interactions. Uh, and meanwhile, if the church is fragmenting, then the younger ones can't really grow in their faith. Uh, because, you know, it says as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharp, sharpens another. And so if the church is always fragmenting into smaller subgroups, uh, that sharpening process can't, can't continue. And so the church can't grow up into maturity. So there's a need for uh, both purity and unity uh, in the church. And so this is a very timely topic for us to look at. Now, in the earlier chapter, chapter 40, uh, 44, uh, Grudem talks about the difference between true and false churches. Okay, so it's important to know whether you're in a false church. If you're in a false church, you ought to leave, okay? Uh, some people think it, it would be their job to stay in the church and, and try to change it from within, and that's a very difficult thing to do if you're dealing with, I mean, an entirely false church. If the leadership of the church are their unbelievers, they're not teaching the word, etc., it's very, very difficult to do anything from inside a group like that. But then you have a different distinction. That would be uh, a difference between more pure and less pure churches. Uh, or if the word purity doesn't help you, then more mature and less mature uh, churches. There are some churches uh, that um, really the prevailing spirit of the church, the leadership of the church, etc., is really godly. There's a sense of the maturity of those leaders and of many people to delight in the word of God and to be faithful in missions, evangelism and prayer and all the things that God calls on us to do. Those are more pure churches or stronger, more mature churches than there are others in which it's not so much that way. That's what we're looking at tonight, that kind of distinction. Uh, now, there's evidence from Paul's epistles, aren't there? Um, without looking at the outline, can you think of some churches that Paul thinks very well of just from his epistles, you know, that he just seems to be very happy with? Yeah, Philippians is a very good example. He doesn't really have very much negative to say about the church at Philippi. He's actually extremely happy with them. 
Um, there, there seems to be indications within the book, uh, book that there's a possibility of some divisions, um, definitely between Yodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, as they don't get along well, and he urges them. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's a, a universal problem like you have in, in some of the other places with that. So Philippians is a good example, and he's very happy with them. Another example would be Thessalonians, the church of the Thessalonians. He's, he thinks very highly of them. Um, and he says so in 1 Thessalonians 1, that's 10 verses, and he just talks about how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and how their reputation is spreading throughout the whole area. He's very happy with that church. Um, how about the other side? What would be a good example of a church Paul is clearly not happy with at all? Corinthians, Corinthians is one, but even worse than them are the Galatians. You know? you know how usually in Paul's epistles he begins by saying, you know, I thank God for you or whatever this. He doesn't even bother with that in Galatia. You know, he just immediately goes to the problem. After grace and peace to you from God our Father, he goes right into, I'm stunned. I'm shocked that you're so quickly abandoning the gospel. You know, I mean, he doesn't waste any time. There's not a lot of, of positive things. But then there's the Corinthians as well. What are some of the issues with the Corinthian church? He's just dealing with stuff all over the map there. But uh, was it Jim that you mentioned? What are, what are some things going on in Corinth? Oh, okay. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Anybody can answer. Personality, you know, one follows Paul, the other Apollos. Factions. Immorality. Right. Problems with the Lord's Supper, you know, some of their running, lack of charity and uh, problems with the the sign gift, speaking in tongues, prophecy. It's almost like what problem didn't they have, you know? Uh, but, you know, so he's got to deal with them and they and they are, um, they're a talented and gifted church, but seemingly a little bit immature dealing with certain issues, boasting, for example, about their gifts and all this kind of thing. So he's got so many things to deal with with the Corinthian church. Uh, etc. So you get the idea. You see the same thing, um, you know, in Christ's uh, uh, letters to the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3. Um, again, there's a spectrum of the churches there, you know. You have two churches in particular. He doesn't say anything negative about at all. The church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. church at Smyrna is the persecuted church going through a great time of, of difficulty. They're small, uh, seemingly insignificant in the, in the uh, society. Uh, they, it seems like they don't have much of an impact, but uh, the Lord uh, says so many good things about them and that they are to be faithful uh, even to the point of death and he'll give them the crown of life. So the church at Smyrna. And then you've got the church at Philadelphia, same thing. Uh, you know, he sets before them an open door that no one can shut. Um, and uh, it's an opportunity for ministry. So he has good things and nothing but good things to say about those churches. And then a couple of churches that he has nothing good to say about at all, uh, like the church at Pergamum. Um, or the church at Laodicea. Uh, those are two churches in particular that it's just very negative from Christ about the church. I know that you have a reputation being alive, but you're actually dead, all right? The dead church. Uh, or the church at Laodicea, which is that lukewarm church that he would like to spew out of his mouth. So, And then in between, then you have some churches like the church at Ephesus, which is solid doctrinally, but is abandoned at first love, etc. So, you know, again, you get the sense of an array or a spectrum of churches. And probably that's been your experience as well. If you've been to a number of local churches and been involved in a number of local churches, you can start to get a sense of the array of churches uh, that there are um, and where they're at in the map, uh, etc. So that's what we're looking at. Um, let's talk about a definition of purity and also of unity. Um, definition of purity that Grudem gives us is the purity of the church is its degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its de uh, degree of conformity to God's revealed will 
for the church. And so I want you to note in that definition the combination of both negative and positive aspects of the definition, okay? And a combination of both doctrine and lifestyle. So you've got kind of four aspects, negative and positive, doctrine and lifestyle. Uh, that, those are the four aspects of Grudem's uh, definition of purity. So exa for example, 1 uh, Timothy 4.16, speaking to an individual, but uh, Timothy, but he then extends it, I think, to the whole church in the verse. 1 Timothy 4.16, very important verse uh, for uh, anybody who wants to be in the ministry. But I think it's also an important verse for any uh, local church as well. So 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there you've got those two aspects. You've got the, the life and you've got the doctrine. A pastor must be very, very careful to watch over his lifestyle, the way he lives, his private life, uh, his thought life. All of those things are important. He must be godly. He must be holy. He must be putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit, growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ. There must be a principle of growth and development in the personal life of the pastor. But he also has to guard his doctrine as well. He's got to be continually watching over his doctrine. You know, I know that it's true that uh, a pastor has to be fully trained. Uh, you know, it says no one is above, no student is above his teacher or a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher, the servant like his master. When the student is fully trained, he is like the master, etc. The concept of being fully trained is a valid one, and you want a pastor to be fully trained. But just because he's fully trained doesn't mean that he's free from the First Timothy 4.16 responsibility to watch over his doctrine. You know, he can, he can drift. There's sad examples in church history and even in our own church experience of, of pastors who drift doctrinally. You know, they might go through some suffering, for example, and then they start to rethink their doctrine of uh, the sovereignty or the providence of God. We've seen that kind of thing happen. Um, uh, others uh, drift in, in other areas. You know, they might, uh, you know, and sometimes their own lifestyle can lead them into a doctrinal drift. You know what I'm saying? Because of some things that happen in their lifestyle, then they start to soft pedal some areas of, of the scripture that they used to be clearer on. And that's really bad. So a pastor has to be careful on both fronts. Well, so does a whole church. You can extend that from the individual to the whole church. The whole church is responsible to watch its life and its doctrine closely. And so you get the hearers. Persevere in them because you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I take the word save there in that verse to, to be that full salvation that we're looking at here. The gospel has a full saving work to do. We're not done with our salvation yet. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so therefore, Timothy, if you persevere in your life and your doctrine, you'll save yourself. And if you persevere in your life and your doctrine, you'll save also your hearers. We have to continue in the road of salvation. I think, what are you looking at there? So that's an important verse. We've talked about this before, but I never tire of mentioning that there are these two patterns given us. The Greek word is tupos, the pattern of lifestyle and the pattern of doctrine. Uh, I think the reason that this is so important for me is that uh, I think it's, it's possible to just kind of go through ministry in a disorganized sort of way and that the church never formulates carefully what it means by maturity. It doesn't carefully formulate what are the body of doctrines that it's teaching to its converts, to its new people. You know, what, what doctrines do people need to know? And furthermore, what kind of lifestyle are we shooting for? Yeah, we have different personalities. We have different callings. You know, we have different giftings. But there's a certain Christian life that all of us are living. You know, 
a certain kind of lifestyle. It has to do with, uh, with personal holiness. It has to do with biblical Bible intake and prayer. It has to do with uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It has to do with 1 Corinthians 13 and love, love for God and love for our neighbors. There's certain kinds of things that are common to all of us. That's the Christian life. We have to have that figured out. We can't say, well, we really don't know what the Christian lifestyle is. You know, Come and discover it with us. We should know what it is, all right? And we should have a good idea of what we're shooting at, right? And so, therefore, there is this two-post, this pattern that we should have clear in our minds. And uh, so, we have this uh, pattern of right doctrine, 2 Timothy 1.13. What you have heard from me, keep us the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. There's that word pattern. So, it's a clear doctrinal base. Uh, Jesus thinks very highly of that in the church at Ephesus in, uh, in Revelation 2. Uh, you know, you have your doctrine uh, together. You know, you're able to refute by sound doctrine those that oppose you. You're able to, to discover those false apostles who claim to be apostles but are not. You found them false. You're able to do that. We should not minimize that. I know we, we go so quickly to say that church at Ephesus forsook their first love. And they did, and that's a problem. But let's not skip so quickly the commendation that he gives them. And I think I know where it came from originally in Acts 20. Paul says, you know, I didn't shrink back from teaching you anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And for three years he was there in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He's teaching them carefully and faithfully, etc. He's establishing the church at Ephesus very carefully with uh, solid doctrine. And others came after and continued that work. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. I, I just think it's exciting that you would come out here on Wednesday night and come to a systematic theology uh, class. I mean... That's, that's a wonderful thing. And I think that, that this church is marked by a, a hunger and a thirst for the word of God. But we could grow in that. There could be more, he, more people here on Wednesday evenings. And, and you yourselves could, could be spreading doctrines uh, around and teaching others and strengthening each other. But at any rate, that's that pattern of right doctrine. Then there's the pattern of right conduct. You know, uh, Philippians 3.17. Uh, and there it says, join with others in following my example, uh, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern uh, that uh, we gave you, or literally it says in the Greek, that you have in us. Again, that word post, the pattern of, of living. So where, where one is the pattern of thinking and believing, uh, this is the pattern of living. And the two are t- intimately connected. We live out what we believe, but they are connected, aren't they? We can't just be hearers of the word, but doers. And those uh, two things go together, all right? Now, Grudem notes, uh, we can't totally focus on purity to the exclusion of unity or the church will be uh, constantly fragmenting into tiny units of very pure uh, churches that delight in their purity and in excluding those who don't measure up. I already touched on that just as we began. So, um, you know, there has to be an emphasis on both purity and unity, not just on the one or the other, all right? Now, what's the definition of unity? Well, unity of the church is its degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. Okay, again, this is among true Christians. We're not dealing with uh, those that uh, claim to be Christians but are not and have found, been found to be uh, not Christians because of some sin that was found in their lives and they didn't repent and then the church disciplined them. You know, hand this man over to, be, to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme or treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is the kind of language of church discipline. But we're talking about people who are genuinely Christians, but they're not getting along. Yeah, go ahead. Um, actually, I had a question about uh, purity. Purity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just from my own observation of different churches, it seems like freedom from wrong doctrine mm-hmm. does consist to some extent in 
balancing the um, emphasis that some churches may take scriptural passages and scriptural concepts and focus on those and uh, to the exclusion of or the minimization of others. And um, so I'm wondering if with the degree of freedom from wrong doctrine right. does include, I mean, just from my perspective as a, not a leader in the church, it looks like there has to be a balance. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that's the way yeah. you perceive it. If mm-hmm. you see it differently than a balance, if it's well, I think it's a wonderful point you're bringing up, and this is why I'm committed to expositional teaching and preaching, because it keeps you from those hobby horses that become your favorite doctrines, and you're going to ride them every time. Sovereignty of God is a good example. Some people just, they zero in on that, and, and you're going to see here on, on the sovereignty of God every week. You know, um, others might focus on holiness, you know, really zero in on holiness. You know, all of the things they choose are valid, but, but there's a whole array of, of teaching that you can miss if you do that. And I also think it's good. It's wise to move from different genres of scripture. Like I've been in Romans for a while, and I'm, you know, I'm very close to finishing. Uh, I've got three more sermons, and then I'll be done with Romans. So I've been thinking about what to what to go to, and I and I consider genre questions too, because God's word comes at us in different ways, poetically, historically. Uh, the, the letters come at you differently than the apocalypse does. These are different approaches that God makes to us, and I try to consider that. But, you know, it's true. Uh, churches can get into a kind of a niche, you know, and that's it's a niche church, you know, and they're known for such and such. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there are actually uh, are gifted churches that focus on certain ministries, and that's okay. We can't, we can't be omnicompetent. Even local churches can't be. You know, there's certain people that are attracted, and then they are focusing on that, and that's okay. But when you're talking about doctrine, you know, let's look at Acts 20. I didn't shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God's will. Well, I think the only way you can really guarantee you're going to do that is to just take the Bible and go through it. You know, I love J. Vernon McGee who just chugged through, you know, through the Bible. That's what they did. You know, he just went through the Bible. And I just think it guards you from, you know, from error. Very good question. So let's keep going. Purity. Now we're talking about unity. Okay, and a definition Grudem gives the unity of a church is its degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. True Christians, the focus to hear rather than false, of course, for with nominal or false Christians, the true heart unity by genuine Christians is really impossible, you see? And we're not called to be one with non-Christians. Actually, quite the opposite. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, come out from them and be separate. So, I mean, I mean, how could it possibly be that we're seeking unity with them? He, he uses the language of being unequally yoked there. You don't want to be closely yoked with unbelievers. You don't have anything in common with them. But how sad is it when you see that kind of attitude among true Christians, you know, and and the divisions that spring up there, that is really tragic. Freedom from divisions is the goal among all genuinely born again people. Um, Divisions are major problems. Uh, You can can tell that by the number of epistles that deal with the issue of unity. How many many different epistles? I can think very quickly of, of... Unity being a central focus in um, Corinthians, right away, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, he, he says that they com- be completely united in mind and thought. And, and the first three chapters that have to do with factions and divisions in the church. I follow Paul, I follow Paul. This is a major theme there. Uh, Ephesians 4, it says that you're to uh, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so there's a whole section there about unity. Um, 
Philippians uh, chapter 2, the whole thing, Jesus being in very nature, God not consider equality with God something to grasp. That whole thing is about unity. You should have a humble mindset and be willing to be a servant to your brothers and sisters and not be arrogant or high-minded, but rather be humble like Christ. And, and that will be a guarantee for unity. Galatians, uh, you know, it's no surprise that once they lurch off into false doctrines, pretty soon they're really bickering with each other because they have turned their back on the life of the Spirit. And so he says, if you, you know, in Galatians 5, he says, if you keep on biting and devouring, watch out, you'll be devoured by each other. You'll be eaten up. There's nothing left. You'll be biting until, you know, each of you are gone. And so if, uh, if he, uh, sorry, Galatians 5 talks about the spirit-filled life. And if you look at the, at the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5, compared to the acts of the flesh, the sinful nature, you know, the sinful nature, like half of the things mentioned there have to do with divisions between people you know, factions, divisions, conflicts and arguments and all that. That's the flesh. But uh, so many of the fruit of the Spirit have to do with, with uh, peaceful relating with other people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. That's how we are united. Those character traits are what pull us together when we're loving to each other, when we're humble to each other, when there's a gentleness with each other, etc. So that's just quickly, you know, uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Certainly, uh, because Ephesians and Colossians are so similar, uh, definitely Colossians will have uh, things in there about unity, uh, which it does in chapter 3, Colossians 3. So this is a major theme. You know what that tells me? That it's a major attack of Satan on the church. You know, that all, all the time the churches are going to have to watch this issue of unity. We're always going to want to divide from each other and, and break, break uh, you know, apart from each other. All right, all I'm doing is establishing that this is a major problem for this church and for any church, okay? And even though I would say right now in the history of my involvement in this local church, divisions and factions is less of a problem now than any time I can remember in the eight years that I've been here. That doesn't mean that we can just say, okay, well, that's settled. (laughs) We'll never need to deal with division in the church again. I can't imagine that. I think you have to be constantly vigilant. And so therefore, we always have to watch for Satan's activity. Uh, that he's going to be sowing seeds of discord between the, the brothers and sisters in Christ here. Got to watch it all the time. All right, well, what causes, uh, the, what is the source of divisions? Well, there's doctrinal and there's the lifestyle, okay? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 29, you're in error because you don't, do not know the scriptures or the power of God. So uh, a lack of a knowledge of the Bible can cause divisions, you know? Uh, some that are more immature may hold some convictions, etc. Um, and may even get quite strident about it, uh, and that's going to be uh, a source of division in the church because those that are mature will say, well, that's just not right. Um, but then you've got some problems. So not knowing the Bible is a source of division in the church. Uh, turn it around, make it more positive, then what's the remedy? Know the Bible better. The better we know the Bible, the more scriptural, uh, scripturally um, uh, mature we are, the less uh, we'll have problems with divisions. Okay? Um, also, parenthetically, that's a very practical thing. If there is a division in the church, it is solved by knowing the Bible better. You see what I'm getting at? So, you know, if, if you come to a point where a group of people is, div- is divided against another group, you've got to roll up your sleeves and open the Bible. You know, you've got to find out what, what's going on, what are they teaching, what are they saying, and let's find out what the truth of it is. You know, uh, Satan wants to say, close the Bible and work on the relationship, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that just won't work, um, you know, obviously. We've got, to, we've got to be united in mind. All right, um, and then there's lifestyle. I mean, if, you want, if, we're, if the question we're seeking to answer is what causes 
divisions among the body, I don't think there could be a better passage than James 4, since that's the very question that it's asking. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Okay, well, tell me. What, what, what does, James? What causes them? Well, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred against God? And so here are these worldly desires that creep up. People want worldly things. And, and that's the start of it. It's a desire for something. That's what began the whole problem with the prodigal son. He wanted something that wasn't available in his father's ranch, you know? And so he said, I'm going to go find it. And what did it lead him to but ruin, right? And if you trace the whole thing back, it all started with a discontent of being at his father's house. He wasn't satisfied with all that his father provided. Isn't that your problem too? Isn't that when you start to roam? You're just not satisfied with what God's given you. Isn't that what God caused problems with David and Bathsheba? He just wasn't content with what God had assigned him. And one of the greatest, most painful, tragic statements of all the things God said to David through Nathan the prophet, if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. You see, I mean, you, I'm, I'm your, your God and your heavenly father. I love you. I've given you everything you need. And look at you, you are roaming wasn't enough for you. You had to go across a boundary and go get something that wasn't yours. I gave her to, to Uriah, not to you. And so you go across that boundary, etc. So you, you take it all back. It starts with wanting something that hasn't been given to you. Covetousness, etc. Susan, you had a question? Well, comment on this if you can. It seems often that uh, for me, I'm not wanting, uh, sometimes I want carnal things. But sometimes I want spiritual things in a carnal way, I guess. Right. I mean, I want this kind of experience with God, or I want this kind of uh, experience with my brothers and sisters right now. Right. So I seem to want spiritual things, but I, I, I don't know. I, the way I perceive it is I want it in a carnal way. You, you yeah. said he's talking about wanting carnal things. So can you yeah. comment on that? I well, that seems to create problems, too. Yeah, it's still wanting something that God doesn't want. Um, it's just put put in a different place. I mean, a very good example of that is that simple prayer I prayed um, when I discovered in, in my prayer life that if we pray according to God's will, He hears us and we have whatever we ask. So I asked that I be free from sin the rest of my life. You know, just now, tonight, starting now, never sin again. You know, well, that's wanting a good thing in a bad way. I know it's a bad way because that's not God's way. What was I seeking? To avoid the pain of temptation and the struggle and the responsibility of putting on my spiritual armor and of growing up and of memorizing Bible verses that helped me in specific areas and of fighting the good fight of faith and all that stuff that he wants us to do. So I wanted a good thing, namely to be completely free from sin in a bad way. Lazy and want it all right now, God. You know, um, And so he, want, he ordained that I fight uh, for the rest of the time I have here in my life. So yes, that's a, that's a good point. So, yeah, in any case, you're wanting something God doesn't want for you. So, yeah, it starts from that desire. But this, in James 4, is focused on the worldliness. And um, it's amazing how much of the worldly truck and trade kind of comes into the church. People want worldly things. And uh, it could be materialism. It could be power and control. That's a big problem for churches. You know, you look at the number of, uh, number of conflicts that come from people who want to control the church. They want to ex exercise the same power and control in the church that they might have, let's say, in their business life um, or in some other thing. And that's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. 
Uh, Galatians, we already mentioned the acts of the sinful nature. How many of them have to do with, with divisions? Uh, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Those are acts of the flesh. Now, John Calvin said, in the two statements here from Calvin, pride or self-glorification is the cause and starting point of all controversies. When each person claiming for himself more than he is entitled to have is eager to have others in his power. So he really zeroes in on pride as the origination of quarrels and conflicts in the church. And then he says, ambition has been and still is the mother of all errors, of all disturbances and sects. So why is, why is that the case, ambition? Well, I'll tell you, just as you look at, at, at church history, the number of doctrinal innovators that have come along to discover something that no one else has ever seen. It's very alluring, you know? It's like you want to you get it published, you know? You want to put it in a book, discover something that nobody's ever seen. Well, I came to the conclusion just from studying historical theology that if you come up with a doctrine that nobody has ever discovered before, one of two things is true. Either you're a heretic or the doctrine that you have discovered is so minuscule and picayune that it's not hardly worth talking about. And even then, you're dealing with 2,000 years of church history. Somebody <laughs> discovered it too, all right? You just don't know them. All right, so the fact is the yearning for innovation, for discovering a whole new way of looking at such and such. You know, I wonder sometimes about the whole new perspective on Paul, you know, which has come up in the last 10 years. You know, I, I worry right from the outset, all right? All of us were misunderstanding the Apostle Paul for the last 300 years, you know? Uh, that seems unlikely to me, you know? So, you know, I want to give them their hearing and I want to find out if they have a valid, you know, aspect. I mean, Luther kind of rediscovered true, you know, Pauline theology on salvation. So it's possible the church can stray in it and needs a whole paradigm shift, etc. But just be suspicious whenever somebody's discovering some whole new way of looking at Christ and the cross and all that. My feeling is, I, you know, for myself, I don't want to teach you anything new. I actually just want to be reminding you of those things you already know. Because we forget right doctrine a lot, don't we? We forget and so Paul says, uh, finally, brothers, and this is Philippians 3.1, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So we need that reminder of right, solid doctrine, etc. Now, there are some things that are new to you, and that's okay. That's wonderful. I actually discover new things all the time in the Bible. But you know what I discover? I don't discover new doctrines. I discover new verses that support the doctrines I already know. That's what I'm discovering. That, you know, that God is faithful to answer prayer or that the, the word of God is powerful and effective in our lives or that we should be humble or that, uh, that we should love one another, etc. These are the basic doctrines. Those are pretty well set and haven't changed in me for, for decades now. But I keep finding more support for those doctrines in places I didn't know they were there. And I think that's what happens as well. And by the way, it's so beautiful. I was going uh, on the on the plane with Jenny um, back, and I, I just I I can't sleep on planes. I don't know. I admire people who can do it. I just can't do it. I try, but you know, you're sitting there, and I don't know what to do with my head. You know what I'm saying? Where do you put your head? And then there's just people all around doing things all evening long, if evening it is. I don't even know where we are sometimes. You know, I mean, is it, you know, then they bring you a meal. And what is it? Is it breakfast, lunch, or dinner? I don't even know where we are. You know, and my body is telling me that we just had dinner four hours ago, and now I'm eating this thing. And it looks like eggs and, and stuff, so they must think it's breakfast. But, you know, anyway, the whole thing is just kind of surreal to me. Um, 
But uh, I just couldn't sleep, and Jenny is even more restless than I am. So, you know, she changed her body position every 23 seconds for 12 hours. So uh, at any rate, I said, let's make the most of the time. So we uh, started going through the book of 1 John. And I got to this uh, place in 1 John where it says, uh, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know the truth. You know, I don't write to you because you don't know, but because you do know it. And that's so, it's such an amazing teaching there. What is the anointing from the Holy One? It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the true believer identifies right doctrine right off, right off. You know, they could even be the newest Christian, but they just know what they hear. They know Christ's voice when they hear it. They just know right doctrine. I'm not saying that they could get up and articulate it and teach it, but when they hear it, they just know that's true. That is true. And the people of God are united in that, and they can just hear and just know the truth. You have an anointing, and you know the truth. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And so that's, that's a wonderful thing. We know the truth, etc. All right, so what causes these fights and quarrels? It comes from yearning uh, for things. Ambition, uh, false teachers are inevitably ambitious people. They want to establish themselves. Uh, you look at the history of liberal theology. A lot of it originated in Germany with uh, uh, teachers like Schleiermacher and Rischel and some of these others. And again, you just really see the yearning for innovation there. They want to be the leader of the next generation of theological teachers in, uh, in Tübingen or, or you know, Wittenberg or wherever city they were at. And, and they just come up with these new things. And no, all of that's been wrong. This is the new paradigm. This is the way to do it. Ah, oh, it's terrible. Ambition. Also, uh, James 3, 16 and 17, which I said was, you know, in my opinion, the, some of the struggles we had in our, in our church, I said this verse more than any other described, in my opinion, what was going on. I, you know, somebody asked, well, what's going on? I said this, James 3.16. All right, you want to know what's going on in this church? James 3.16 and 17 is the verse to describe it. Well, what does it say? It says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Boy, that says it all, doesn't it? All right, in other words, when people want something that God hasn't given them, they start to make a mess of things and stir things up and get you know, upset and say things that ought not to be said. And it all roots in wanting something that God hasn't given. And that's a problem. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That is sweet, isn't it? Give me verse 17, not verse 16. I would like to have that humble wisdom that comes from heaven. That's a beautiful thing. So that's what we want. We want freedom from division. We have looked now at the source of divisions. Now let's talk about signs of a more pure church. Notice, by the way, we're talking about more pure, not pure, okay? Pure is a perfect word, you know? If you really look at it, pure and perfect are both similar in that regard. Uh, None of us are pure and no church is pure. There are no pure churches, okay? But the church of Jesus Christ will someday be perfectly pure. And we're all looking forward to that and praise God for that. But in the meantime, you've got more pure or less pure. Every church has some flaws in its doctrine, and every church has flaws in its lifestyle. It's just the way it is. It's Romans 7 problem. All right? But we're looking for more pure church. Now, Grudem gives us a list of 12, I believe, 12 uh, issues or criteria, etc. Just do, do me a favor, and I think it's beneficial just to look at what they are before we support them from Scripture. Let's look at them. For example, a more pure church would be characterized by right preaching of the word, biblical doctrine. Secondly, proper use of the sacraments or ordinances. Most Baptists tend to call them ordinances. Uh, A right use of church discipline. Genuine worship. Um, Effective prayer. uh, Effective witness. um, Effective fellowship. uh, Biblical church government. 
spiritual power in ministry, personal holiness of life among members, a care for the poor, and love for Christ. These are 12. Now, they're not the only 12. I think, you know, if you get your mind spinning and working, you could come up with some other things. But I'll tell you this. If you've got churches that are mature and godly and right, and these 12, you've got yourself a more pure church. You've got a good church, and that's what you're looking for. For me as a pastor, I'd want to look over these 12 areas and try to find out how we're doing in each of them. You know, we went through a process with the deacons over the last year in which we're trying to identify kind of our mission, what kind of church should we be and all that. And it was very hard for me. Because as we did that, it was like, well, we're starting to say we're not going to do these things and and whatever. And I think it's reasonable to focus in and to do some ministries and do them well. But to put into writing, you know, we are going to be this kind of a church, it it becomes a little bit difficult. Because for me, I've got the whole 66 books of the Bible. I've got to look at everything that God's called us to do and be. I can't say, well, we don't need to worry about that. That's for another church. This is for us, etc., so therefore, I you know, talk about, for example, inner city ministry. You know, some could say, well, we're really not called in a major way to do that. Well, I'll tell you this. I'm never going to close the door on that, ever. You know, even though it seems right now we don't have an abundance of people who have the call to minister in the inner city, I'm still praying that someday we will. And now we have some, and I praise God for them. And we do some things throughout the year for the inner city. But I, I'm open and yearning for the day when we'll do 10 times as much as we're doing now without neglecting the things we're already doing. That would be growth for us as a church. You see how I don't want to just close something down. But as I look at these 12 areas, I, I really want us to be healthy and strong in each of them. All right? It starts with this idea of biblical uh, doctrine or the right preaching of the word. Titus 1, uh, an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Notice how negative that is, essentially. You know, uh, yes, he must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, but he's also got to shut down false teachers because they just ruin people. You know, he says they ruin whole households. And so uh, you've got to have that elder who'll go out and stand and say, wrong, we're not teaching this, this is wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, I'll show you why. You've got to be able to show from Scripture why it's wrong, but he's got to do it. He's got to be the watchman on the walls, doctrinally, right teaching of the Word. All right, many, many verses we could use to support this, but uh, faithful teaching from the Word. You know, the people of God need to be fed. You know, you just need, I mean, think about what Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, feed them. Feed them what? Feed them the word of God. Doesn't that strengthen you when you see new things in the word and, and you read, you have a good quiet time? Don't you feel strengthened by that? I just do. I think it's beautiful. So, right teaching the word. Second is this idea of the proper use of the sacraments or ordinances, which we believe as Baptists are two, Lord's Supper and Baptism. Um, you know, we follow Luther's uh, critique of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. He brought it down to those two as well. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 17 through 34, the whole section is not quoted there, you know, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 11 as the major kind of dealing with problems with uh, especially the Lord's Supper. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, uh, for your meetings do more harm than good. You know, tell it like it is, Paul, you know, it'd be better if you didn't get together, actually. You ought to all just stay home, because when you get together, it's worse than, than if you didn't. 
In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I think verse 19 is actually not sarcastic, but I, I think that he's like, he's like, yeah, definitely have to be some divisions so that you can prove who's, who's approved by God. I've heard others come at that and say that that's a right uh, principle that he's giving. I tell you, biblical interpretation is always exciting and fun, you know. But uh, whether Paul's being sarcastic there or not, all I know is, uh, you know, this issue of divisions is a big problem. But then he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. I know you think you are, but it's not. Why not? Because of how you're behaving, because of your attitude, the way that you carry yourself, etc. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. If you read the whole chapter, he's dealing with a lot of problems around the Lord's Supper. Like some of them were just gorging themselves, eating a lot. Uh, some were getting drunk on the wine that was being served at the Lord's Supper, etc. So, I mean, that's you can see why Paul would then say, if that kind of stuff's going on, it's better that you stayed home and, than that you did that. Um, so, and he actually says, this is such a serious matter that a number of you are sick and some have fallen asleep. Wow. You know, that's a very, very serious statement that the Lord, Jesus, is serious that the church uh, deal properly with the ordinances. All right, and and so I I never forget that. To me, for me, the Lord's Supper is a very spiritual and and joyful time, but it's a serious time, and so there's a balance there between sobriety, a sense of of the seriousness of what you're doing, and a sense of celebration. It's for sinners. You don't have to be sinless and pure to take it. It's to remind us that the blood was shed for us. It's to remind us of the future joy that we have in the presence of God, that we'll feast with Him in heaven. These things are true. Um, but it should be done, you know, it should be done seriously. So the Lord's Supper and then baptism as well. Uh, it's important that the church understand baptism properly. Um, thirdly, right use of church discipline. First uh, Corinthians five, uh, four through six, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may, may be destroyed and the spirit saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know the little yeast works with a whole batch of dough? There's a very key passage on church discipline. Hand this man over to Satan, in my opinion, means kick him out of the church. I think that's what Paul is saying there. Because, you know, you've got God's country, God's world, and that's the church. And then outside is Satan's place. He's the God of this world, etc. So when you're handing somebody over to Satan, you're basically sending them out of the church. I think that's what's going on there. So right use of church discipline. Uh, fourthly, a genuine worship. And by the way, thirdly, uh, churches that, that avoid church discipline are going to have significant problems. And so what percentage of churches in America does that uh, cover? Well, the overwhelming majority of them, I think. Uh, church discipline is frequently avoided. Why? Because it's not pleasant. It's very difficult. For me, I think it's better to have a full or holistic view of church discipline that anything that you're doing that stops the progress of sin in the church is a form of church discipline. You know, just right teaching is a form of church discipline. I really look on discipline as a, as a subset of discipleship. The, the words are even related in English. I think they're very carefully, you know, so any, anything that you're establishing inside people's hearts that stops the progress of sin is a form of discipline. Anytime that you are convicted by a sermon and feel like you need to do something differently, I think some discipline has happened in your life. 
Anytime I'm writing a sermon and working on it and I find myself convicted or brought up short, like that whole issue of holding the rope for those that go down into the unreached people groups, I found that I wasn't doing enough in my personal prayer life for that. I was convicted. It was a form of discipline in my life. So I don't think we should just reserve it for that final vote. You know, the person's voted out. That is a form of church discipline, but it's not the only one. You know, I think just a, a convicting conversation in the hall or a brother or sister who tells you the truth about something or, or whatever, all of those things can be forms of church discipline. Okay, fourthly, genuine worship. A healthy church is going to be a worshiping church. All right, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be a worshiping church. And, uh, you know, I, to me, I feel that, that our church has grown in this area, but I think we have a long way to go. Um, I really would like to, I'd like to look around on Sunday morning and just see every face engaged, every heart engaged, you know. There should be a temperature of worship, you know, in our church. Um, I, really, I really feel that we should be hotter in our worship than we are, you know. And I think that's going to come. I think it's a relationship of our, you know, I, I want it to be led by truth. You know what I'm saying? I want people to be responding emotionally to truth. You know, emotion's a good thing, okay? God has emotions. Jesus had many emotions. Emotions are good things, but they need to be led by truth. They really do. Uh, emotions are directly connected to, uh, to the truth that you believe. You know, when Jacob said, I'll go down to the grave mourning for my son, talking, talking about Joseph, right? The whole thing was based on uh, falsehood. <laughs> But those emotions were powerful and real for him, weren't they? He really thought Joseph had been ripped to shreds by a wild animal. So he was miserable and cried himself to sleep that night, if he even did sleep. And then many times over the years that followed. The whole thing was false. He was alive. He was thriving. God was blessing. God's plan was right on schedule. You see how it is? And so emotions follow your perception of truth. And therefore, for me, I want an emotional worship, but I want it totally based on, um, totally based on truth. And emotions have a tendency to grab hold and go on their own direction, don't they? So anyway, there's got to be that. But I, I really, I, I feel that we need to take responsibility for our corporate worship, don't we? We need to come in ready to worship. You need to have your heart already warmed up toward the Lord. You need to have had a good quiet time, be walking well with the Lord, putting sin to death, come in ready to worship. And then show it, you know, show it, you know, show that you love the Lord. You know, let tears of gratitude come down your, your face if something moves you. Don't restrain, don't, don't check the spirit, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not saying that we need to become Pentecostal or anything like that. I'm not saying that. But I, I, just, I just think we should engage. You know, I don't think the Lord is honored when we quench the spirit in that regard. All right? So, those of you that have a more charismatic bent to me, don't misunderstand me. And come talk to me if you're thinking, you know, everybody has different ideas of what quenching the spirit is. But I tell you this, I think we do it more than we think we do. So genuine worship. Uh, number five, effective prayer. Uh, a good, healthy church, a more pure church, that's what we're talking about, describing the more pure church, is a praying church. All right? Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Why do you think he says being watchful and thankful? when it comes to the issue of prayer. Okay, watchful for opportunities to pray. A need uh, issue, very good. For answers to prayer, that's right. We sent it up in prayer, we expect them to answer. And by the way, I want to tell you something. The first night that I preached in India was one of the hardest preaching times in my life. It was, it was, one of the, it was absolutely 
oppressive the feeling I had of the presence of Satan. Um, I had I have never had so much of a divided mind about the message I was about to preach as I did that night. You know, oh, that won't be right. This is wrong. You should have done this. You know, recriminations and all this sort of stuff. I never deal with that. I usually just know what I'm going to preach and go preach. And I said, this has got to be the devil. And and yet I felt sustained, but I had to still, I, I felt very much like the, the priests carrying the, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, sorry, the Ark, Ark of the had to put their feet in the Jordan River before God would show his miracle working power. So I had to get up there and preach. But, you know, once I did, it just went away like the mist. And I just preached freely and with confidence and power. I think the people, the prayers of the people of God got me through that evening. I think if, if people hadn't been praying, I wouldn't have been able to. I, I almost didn't want to go up. It was weird. It was an odd thought. But it got easier as it went on. But, I mean, you know how it says in, in one of the letters to the churches in Revelation, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Well, that's scary. That there could be a locality, a place, you know, with a longitude and latitude kind of mark on the map. And Satan has his throne there. Well, I might vote for a place in India somewhere. You know, I, I'm thinking it's just wicked. It's really, really oppressive, the idolatry there. It's just really evil. And, you know, Haiti is similar, but on a much smaller scale. You know, Haiti is like India on a smaller scale. India is just full-blown idolatry for millennia. And so you have to imagine that Satan at least has a throne there, etc. Anyway, effective prayer, being watchful and thankful. Effective witness. You can't be a more pure or a healthier, mature church if you're not witnessing to the lost, sharing the gospel. I mean, this is, this is basic, friends. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. A church, there, therefore, is not seeking and saving the lost, cannot be a healthy church. And, you know, it's so amazing, these churches that, that really kind of pull back and are really strong doctrinally, and they're not really reaching out with the gospel and all that. They're really being very immature, and they're being very unhealthy. So churches need to keep engaged with the non-Christians around. And you know why that's hard? Because they don't want us. <laughs> they don't want the gospel. And so, therefore, they're going to give us a hard time. But we must be fruitful evangelistically. Uh, so a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you must, if, you're, if you are my disciples. I don't even know why I chose that verse. That must have been a weak moment there. But it's a good verse. I mean, we should love one another. Um, but um, <laughs> Acts 8.4, that was a bad moment there. But at any rate. Question about yes. Four. Yes. This will help me a lot if you comment on this. In the church, we were sometimes here during our worship. Mm -hmm. I feel like I really like to clap. Mm -hmm. after something is sung or something is said. Mm -hmm. In the previous church we were at, there was it was a splintered church, and some people voicing their concerns seemed to have this really big issue with clapping. It really got them upset when anybody clapped mm -hmm. because they, I guess they thought we were thinking of it as a performance or something. Mm -hmm. And this is a a source of tension to me in our worship. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I really like to clap, and I've mm -hmm. been at a church where people just clap, and it was no problem. Right. But I've been at a church where it was a big problem for some people, so I find myself, mm -hmm. if you will, I don't know if it's clenching or maybe it's just exerting self-control, because right. I don't want to give somebody the big issue I heard right. others had. Well, it's, a good, it's a good question, and it's not easy to answer. I actually think there's a community 
agreement almost about certain behavior patterns. Um, and when the community accepts those, then they're free. Like you talk about raising hands, like people that raise hands in worship. You can just be in certain churches where everybody knows that's acceptable and it's just not an issue. It just is not. You want to raise your hands in worship? You do, okay? Others don't feel comfortable and they don't, but it's not a source of tension for anybody. It's just been established in that community that that's fine. But if you're in a church where hardly anybody ever raises their hands and then you get uh, somebody from the pews that wants to be a trailblazer and start raising their hands, then it, it becomes difficult. Therefore, I believe that especially the preacher, the pastor, the pastor has to kind of set the tone for that. Knowing the people and knowing some ground that could be taken, I think for him to say, look, you want to raise your hands, raise your hands in worship, etc. Give people the permission to do that. I think that's the way that we come to community understandings about that. Other than that, it is going to be a source of problem for people. You should care what your brothers and sisters are thinking. And so um, for me, I think it really is up to the pastoral staff to say, you know, I think we are too restrained in worship, and I think there's some ways that we can grow, grow up in that. But you don't want to cut the thing loose either, you know. Uh, just because you're exercising self-control doesn't mean you're quenching the spirit. I mean, that's a, that's a fallacy. For example, the, the prophets were commanded to control themselves while other prophets were speaking, Right. They said the spirit of the, of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. So therefore, exercising of godly self-control in a public corporate worship service is a good thing. So you're like, oh, no, now I don't know if I'm quenching the spirit or exercising godly self-control in the corporate worship service. Which is it? Ask the Lord. We have to, we have, to have a sense. But you ought to know that both of those poles are there, that, that we ought not to quench the spirit, but we ought not to say anything goes. If you feel it, do it, you know. I don't want to be in a service where if you feel it, do it. I've heard about those kind of worship services. And I don't think it's quenching the spirit to say everything should be done decently and in good order. Paul said that. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those are these chapters for these questions. But for me, I feel like it's up to the pastor to know his people, to know the culture he's in, and to say, you know, I think these are some ways we are quenching the spirit. You know, and, and I do think we are. I think, I think we're not as emotional in worship as we should be. I sense a distance sometimes between the people of God and the presence of God. And I think that that ought not to, not to be the case. For me, I don't think it was quenching the spirit to come down off the podium, off the dais and worship with my family, all right? Because I felt quenched when I was on display, you know, up there in those white thrones, you know what I'm talking about? Those chairs up there. And I'd like to cry or I'd like to, you know, whatever. I'd like to just, and I was being watched and I was restrained. You know what I'm saying? What is everybody thinking about me while I do that? Don't mind me. You do your own thing. I'm going to be worshiping in my own way, okay? You know, et cetera. So finally I said, I just can't be up here anymore. It was quenching my spirit. So I had to sit down with my family, and it's been a good decision for me. I think those white chairs are probably pretty soon a thing of the past. Um, I don't think it's bad to have a white chair you can sit in as you're waiting for the guy to get done, and then you can go up and... Anyway. But I digress and ramble. I am very tired, so I'm almost almost done uh, today, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I can't just cut loose. I, if I seriously, as a, as a pastor, even in, in an acts class like this, I can't say, "Look, do whatever you want, whatever you feel." That's not right because uh, you're, you're right in caring that other people will, will think. If you're the only one clapping, and you become the clap pioneer, you know what I'm saying? That that's going to be a problem. If, on the other hand, there's a kind of a movement of the spirit that you know that's going to be okay, then then at that point. It's not an issue, like the raising of the hands and all that. So really, Susan, what you ought to do and others should is pray for me and for the other ministerial staff to have wisdom in knowing how to lead us to grow in really warm-hearted worship because it's an important topic. 
that we would have wisdom to know how to, how to, how to take this community, 414 Cleveland Street, First Baptist, and move us on to higher levels of really joyful, zealous worship. So anyway, um, let's uh, pick this up, God willing, next time and keep looking at being a more, more pure church. Let's close in prayer. Father, these things are not easy, but uh, at the center of it all is a strong sense that you're our shepherd and you're going to guide us uh, into all truth. You're going to guide us to being where we need to be. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be a more pure church, purer than we are now, O oh Lord. I pray that you'd help us to put sin to death, that we'd grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ and that you would be at the center of everything we do. God, be honored and glorified in this church. And Father, I pray that people would leave our worship service genuinely, deeply refreshed in the Lord, that they'd feel a sense of the great joy of their salvation, that they would have a sense of gratitude renewed toward Christ, a sense of certainty that all of his promises toward us will be fulfilled, that in Christ all of the promises of God are yes and amen and that people will walk out feeling that their problems are actually small, infinitely small even, compared to the power of God at work in them and around them to solve each of those problems. Lord, I pray those things would happen in our worship service. And Lord, as we look at each of these 12 um, criteria or aspects of, of healthy churches, pure churches, Lord, help us to grow in our weak areas. Lord, help us to grow in evangelism. I pray that we'd see more and more people baptized and built up in their faith. God, I pray, just work in our church and make us what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.